back to another episode of Pocket Law Talks. This is your host, Brett. Oh, across the way, as usual, is producer Devin. Hey, how's it going? As we're taping, this is producer Devin's birthday today, so shout out to happy birthday to Devin. Yep, one year closer to dying. That's a wonderful way to look at it. <laughs> so last time we talked about the YNW Melly, not, not so much about his trial. We did a little bit, but mostly about what he's dealing with, why he's in the situation he's in, and who he is. You know, most people in the younger generation that listen to rap music, they know who he is. But uh, outside of that, and I would, I, he's pretty popular in the rap scene. But even then, you know, he's not, he's not like Drake, where everybody knows who they are and things like that. So he has been dealing with a trial for the last several months. This has gone an absurdly long time, and unfortunately, Broward for, County, Florida. Yeah, in Broward County, Florida, which is rife with gangs, and there's a lot of rappers that come from Broward County specifically, like Kodak Black. If you don't know who he is, he's a massive rapper. Uh, any of the older generation would look at him and think he looks like a fool, but granted, he used to be super poor and came from the projects, and now he's rich, so there's something to say about that. It ended up ending in a mistrial, which is something we're going to get into, especially towards the end, on why that happens and how did that happen necessarily. Uh, but we're going to do a little brief overview on like why he's in this situation, some important facts of the case, and then we're going to tell you about this crazy roller coaster of a trial that this was because this was just a f- clown show. I mean, some of the things that happened were just crazy, and I feel like there was a lot of wrongdoing on the state's part. And uh, sometimes it seemed like the the defense was grasping at straws, and sometimes it seemed like they had a really solid argument. And it it, just, it seems like the state didn't put their best prosecutor on this. She's a uh, she's a state assistant or assistant state attorney, something like that. So she's like the right hand man of the elected prosecutor. And I'm just surprised that he would pick someone who's like this weak in trial. I don't know if she just didn't have confidence in the state's case, which from the facts you would think they would. But just on the things that they've done, especially like from other feedback and, you know, like commentators and stuff, they tend to not have a lot of positive things to say about the prosecution in regards to this case. And not just because they like YNW Melly, but just because it seems like they're making a lot of mistakes or they're doing some underhanded things. Yeah, I'll say when I watched uh, parts of the closing this week, um, and, and this is true of anybody that it, it's prosecuting a higher high profile cases. They're extremely stressful for prosecutors because, especially one that's being televised as much as this one is, they're being they're on the spotlight. Everything they're doing is being money more money Monday morning quarterbacks, second guessing, all that good stuff. So it is very stressful. Uh, I've tried a couple of cases when I was a prosecutor that the media was following very closely, and it definitely raises it to another level. And I'd say what I would what I would say about what I saw, especially during closing, is it felt like um, she was tired. It looked like she was tired. Like the energy had been sucked out of her by the time she got to closing statement. And you know everybody, everybody has their good days and their bad days, right? Sometimes you're on your A game, sometimes you're on your B game, sometimes you're on your C game. C game isn't one you want to be at for a closing statement. Um, but these trials are just like they—they're all consuming. They take over your life. You're not doing anything other than working on. I mean, especially lasting this long. I mean, multiple months long trial. That's this is absurd. You know, you don't see that in Indiana at all, even for like major cases. No, right? yeah, week long is a lot, very long trial in Indiana. A lot of these courts will do part of the day as the trial, part of the day other court stuff. That makes for very long, dragged out trials. But it's trials are exhausting. You're putting everything you have into them. You're you're as the prosecutor, you're like coordinating the play, you're producing the play, you're then choreographing the play, and then you're putting on the play. You're the director. All of that's happening, and it's it's a lot. It's extremely stressful. And I felt like at the end during her closing, it was like she was just spent. That's that's how I'd say it. I, you know, the, what I saw, she was getting the information across, to the but sort of the emotion, the passion that you need to deliver on a, in a closing statement, uh, which the defense did. I saw that on the defense side. Uh, you, you didn't feel like her ending, her very ending was just, it was... it was, it was Kind was, of fell flat. It's kind of a dud, yeah. I mean, what she said, yeah, it was effective, but, you know, you got to put some voice inflection in there and some motion, and, and jurors are human, and they, they make emotional decisions. We'll talk about the... The jury verdict, and what I think that means later on, but yeah, just kind of an overview. I felt like at least what I saw in the end, she she seemed tired. I didn't think about this, but I wouldn't want my judge like if I was up for trial, I wouldn't want my judge to be focusing on other things for half the day. Like I, I kind of not only do I want it, of course, to get over as fast as possible, but I mean, if like half the day 
he's listening to my stuff and then the other half of the day he's listening to all of his other defendant stuff and this is something that goes months long i feel like it'd be easy for the judge to forget facts of the case or to like yeah, we got to remember the judge doesn't decide but don't they do the sentencing they do the sentencing but the judge doesn't decide guilt or innocence guilt or, in, guilt, guilt, guilt or innocence is the jury and that's what gets decided at trial if you get, if if he's found guilty and they get to sentencing i mean they, they're going to put on a whole nother horse and pony show then at that point and yeah. in the sentencing hearing, you're probably talking a day or two. I was just thinking, though, like, Although what if he confuses facts penalty. of the case with, like, another defendant? You know what I mean? And it, the someone good, who's good judges will take trial. really meticulous notes, and they'll go back and forth through them and as the trial's going on. But How are they taking notes, though? You never see, or at least I've never seen with the trials I've watched, like a judge sitting there writing the whole time or, like, typing the whole time. Because you would think if you're making meticulous notes, you're going to spend, like, half the trial typing. Well, they don't all. Some of them do, some of them don't. I... I I've seen judges who take almost like word for word down to what's being said. And like, if there's an objection and, and, you know, I'm arguing, Hey judge, they just said this, it was inappropriate. It was not proper. It's a misstatement of the evidence, whatever. They'll go back through their notes and find that section and actually read it back uh, without having to have the court reporter read it back for them. But there's also judges that play solitaire. <laughs> Trials are going on. Really? For sure. How do you know that so, they're doing that? I've seen it. Yeah, you, you, you look over, they're playing cards on their computer or whatever. Um, oh, my gosh. Because they need to be able to rule on objections, but they really don't rule on the evidence. So they're kind of the referee, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess if they're going to reference the trial and the sentencing, but the sentencing is its own little animal. Imagine you're like life is on the line and your judge is just like not paying attention, playing Clash of Clans underneath the desk <laughs> or something, or he's like losing his life savings to online poker <laughs> as you're like trying to not lose your life. Yeah, I mean, uh, most judges are paying pretty close attention to a trial, especially a murder trial where it's 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 this serious. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, all in all, um, I'd be more worried about the jury forgetting about something, you know, super important yeah. that's going on for that long. Do they get transcripts from the court reporter when they go deliberate or what? Or are they just supposed to remember it all? No, uh, they don't get transcripts, but they can ask, like, if there's a particular part of evidence they want to rehear or rehash or look at again, they can they can make that request. Uh, sometimes the parties will argue over whether that happens or not. When they do that, is the prosecutor, like, showing them the evidence and talking about it, or is it just, like... Here's a PowerPoint, or here's a piece of paper we're related uh, to. And in, in Indiana, it's uh, it's judicial discretion. I mean, the judge gets to decide. I've had everything from like what happens most often is when there's video evidence, they want to rewatch videos. Right. That happens a lot. Um, some judges will give them the equipment and the evidence, and they can do that in the jury room, and they can look at things. They can look at they can look at guns. They can look at evidence, whatever they want to look at. They have access to, and they can do it. Some judges will make all the parties come back, and the jury has to watch it from the jury box in the courtroom. And so it's still very controlled. They can't manipulate it. They can't fast-forward or slow down video, things of that nature. They can just watch it live again on the I feel like that would be kind of annoying, screen. though, if there's, like, a very specific instance that you're trying to, like, see closely. You know what I mean? Right. The freeze frame uh, for an identification case. You want to see a, right. a bank robber from this certain angle. You thought it looked like him, but you wanted to look at it real closely. Most Most courts will allow that. Um, some of them are very strict about relooking at evidence that wasn't presented during the trial, um, but most—I'd say most of the time—they they can get into it if they want to. Okay. So, just quick overview of what's going on: a grand jury indicted demons on February seventh, twenty nineteen. He surrendered over on February thirteenth, twenty nineteen, and, and, and just as a quick reminder, his name is Jamel. That's his demons. actual last yeah, name. Yeah. Is demons. Which Worst is a, possible defendant. You know, at ever. court, I think the prosecutors pronounced it like demons. Demons. Something like that, or maybe it was like a court correspondent or something like that, which is a way more lame. Oh yeah, if his last name. name's Demons. I'm using that all. Usually, as a prosecutor, the rule is you refer to them as the defendant because you want to dehumanize them as much as possible. Right. But when their last name's Demons and they're charged with murder, right? I might be using that. <laughs> so yeah, he's been held there without bond for over four years, and he could face the de death penalty. And the people that he had allegedly killed were fellow YNW Collective rappers Christopher Juvie Thomas Jr. and Anthony Sack Chaser Williams on October 26, 2018, in Broward County. If you want to know his whole story behind everything, we got into it in pretty good detail last episode. Um, and they'd seen surveillance video, the jury, and by that I mean, had seen surveillance video showing demons, the two victims in uh, Cortland, Bortland Henry, 
Uh, getting into the backseat of a great Jeep Compass outside of the new era recording studio at 805. You know, there's a long address. Another video shows Henry at Memorial Miramar Hospital because basically, long story short, he says that they were on a drive-by. Uh, Bortland takes his two dead friends to the hospital and YMW Melly is nowhere to be found, whereas prior they were all in the car. So his friends are dead and they're saying that it's the drive-by, but detectives didn't find any evidence of that. They go through their cell phone records, they go through surveillance footage, and basically this, the place that they say it happened isn't the place that they find evidence. And they find it at another spot, which is where his cell phone had pinged off. So de- the detective in the, in the and, state... And, and including, uh, maybe, you, or maybe you get into this, uh, but they also find the same shell casing that's found where the shooting does happen inside the vehicle. Right, yeah. So there's Huge deal. specific facts of the case that don't look good for you know YNW Melly. And especially since he's saying it's a drive-by shooting, why would he leave? And, like, he ends up changing his clothes and all these other things. So a bunch of things that don't add up. Of course, the defense is saying he's innocent, and he only became a suspect when Miramar detective realized that he was a rapper, which tends to be, I feel like, a defense that people use a lot when it comes to rappers is they think that the detectives kind of have... Profiling him. Yeah, exactly. And I would definitely say that that does happen for sure. I mean... I've seen instances of like rappers that I like to watch and follow. They'll they'll get arrested right before their uh, like before a big concert or something, and the the police do that just so they can't make the money off the concert. Like they're just fucking with them. Yeah, I mean, but it, it, you have to keep in mind though too. In this case, they did have evidence. The first video shows him in the car, so he they know who's in that car. Oh right yeah, I wasn't saying happens. that these, this was unfounded. That's just what the defense is trying uh, to get. Sure, at, absolutely. Which of course they're going to hit at every angle they can. So, you know, they're saying that the bullets came from within the Jeep and the bullet trajectory just doesn't make sense because if I remember correctly, the bullets had came from right to left, but they were supposed to come from left to right. And especially with how, like, the bullets, the impact looked on the door and stuff, you know, the metal is going to extend outwards when the bullet is leaving it. And so you can kind of tell which Because they do fire some shots to make it look like it's a drive-by, but they made it look like the bullets came in on the passenger side traveling toward the driver's side. And the injuries to the decedents were from entering on the driver's side through yeah. out the passenger side. and They even had stippling on one of them, which means, like, the gun is so close that right. the heat of f- discharging it, like, causes an injury in and of itself around the entry wound. And where Melly's sitting in the vehicle, all those things are possible. Right, yeah, I mean, yeah. Be, it, the shooting would be from left to right, and you got to be close for stippling. So Detective Polo, he's a... Uh, He's like the main gang detective there, and there's some issues that... His first name, Marco. Probably. It's hard to find him. <laughs> Maybe that's why he's an undercover. <laughs> but uh, he has some issues with the jury later on, but he says that uh, Jamel Demons wasn't reciprocating as much as the gang members were asking him to. The two people that he had allegedly killed were part, I think it was a Bloods gang? Yeah. But Polo also acknowledged that demons appeared to have friends who were both Bloods and Crips. And like I said, in Broward County, Florida, there is, like, constant gang wars and gang fighting. Even even Bloods fighting against Bloods, Bloods fighting against Crips, it doesn't necessarily matter because it's kind of broken down to, like, your individual sect. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, there's, uh, apparently there's some text messages going back and forth between because all these, all these gentlemen are in the same rap group or whatever, however you want to say it. And obviously Melly is making some pretty good money now. They're all wanting their cut. Yeah. And yeah. there's some text messages going back and forth where it's pretty obviously Melly doesn't think what they're bringing to the table is worth very much money. Obviously, they disagree. And there's a lot of lot of uh, arguments kind of going about by going about that. My guess is probably not a great contract involved that was defining their different shares of what they're supposed to be getting. And so that's what the state, the prosecutor, is using as the motive for, for the shooting. All right. So let's get into this crazy wonky trial. So Kurt Rhodes, which is like the state's DNA, you know, specialist or whatever they are called, he concluded that YNW Melly's DNA was included among three other individuals, and DNA results are 2.1 or 10 and one eighths or 2.12 million more likely that than not that they originated from Melly. But here, here's what's really weird and something that like a lot of people have brought up. Originally, his DNA sample was was negative, and only after the trial started and they reran his DNA did it come back positive. Yeah, they did a, like an initial search of the vehicle that lasted I don't know. I think they were saying six, eight, maybe even fifteen hours. And it didn't come back, and then they did a secondary search, 
And that's when they come up with a sample that does show his DNA. There. I just feel like that's a little suspicious after the trial's already started. That's what they're, they're arguing. I saw the defense uh, in their closing. They were making the argument, how can you trust this investigation? If you, if you do a 15-hour search of a vehicle and it didn't come up anything, and then it, later on it does come up with something, um, you know, how can you trust that? Good argument to make. Yeah. Well, during even cross-examination, you know, the, the defense had asked this guy if the state had pro, uh, had pressured him to change his uh, opinion on anything or if just because the prosecutor asks if a DNA can come back positive because the, the, the prosecutor wants it to, basically. Like, that's, that's what he was getting at. Well, and, and, and oh, honestly, it, it, it's from the rear driver's side door handle of the vehicle. They already had video putting him in that seat, so finding his DNA there is not all that... Yeah, they ended up finding uh, it, it wasn't found anywhere in the car except the rear driver's side door handle. But Correct. at the same time, I mean, like, how long would your DNA stay there if you like if you use a car a week ago? Do you think your DNA would still be there if it hasn't rained or anything? It, it, was, it probably was touch DNA because that's skin cell DNA. Right. You, you flake skin cells all the time. Anytime you're anytime you're anywhere, you're flaking skin cells. Uh, they're very unstable, so it's not uh, super reliable in terms of exactly where it's found. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it touching it is kind of a luck thing, right? Because, you know, you can have it right here on the corner table we're sitting at, and if you swipe the entire table but not that one little spot... Right, you're, you're not going to get it. it. I mean, a skin cell with DNA in it is a little nothing. Right, yeah. Obviously, you can't see it to the naked eye. It's not like blood that's going to stay wherever it was found. It can move. It's, you know, the wind can make it, it move from one spot to another. Like a speck Yeah, of so... It's not. It's testing is not the greatest thing in the world. It, it's good for putting somebody somewhere, but they already had. You know, they already have him in the car. Yeah. The results. It, it, Devin mentioned two point one. You know, uh, million more likely. That means if you took two million people, the only person that would have that sequence of DNA um, would be out of those two million people would be Melly. Right. You added four, there might be two. So it's still pretty good. It's pretty good evidence. Right. That's him. But they already have him in the car, too. So um, there are some things, I guess, that were uh, the defense jumped all over in, re- in relation to that and it being a late disclosure. Um, yeah, the judge ruled that the prosecution committed a discovery violation because they didn't disclose the second forensics report. So that information ended up being uh, excluded because during discovery... Yeah, excluded a whole witness. Yeah, a and whole just witness. So, just so our listeners know, that's an extreme remedy for discovery violation. It's not something judges will do very easily because uh, they can grant continuances. They can they can take a four- or five-day, a week-long break in a trial and say, you know, give the, the defense side more time to look into something. But excluding a, a witness is is a pretty drastic um, remedy. And all my time as an attorney, I've only had it happen once. And we were in the middle of trial, and the defense said they had an alibi witness. So they had a witness that had never been disclosed in the middle of trial that was going to say the defendant was at another location at the time that the crime was committed. That's a huge, huge thing to get find yeah. out about in trial, yeah, right? Yeah, during trial. And so the judge found that that was uh, inappropriate disclosure. The state wouldn't have a, a proper remedy to uh, look into that, and obviously thrown off the whole theory of the case. Right. And she excluded the witness. They appealed that to the court of appeals, and that conviction was overturned. And they said that the judge should have taken a break in the middle of the trial, given the state time to look into that, and let the witness be called. Oh, really? Yeah. So that shows you how... When it comes to excluding witnesses, uh, is the Court of Appeals more favorable to the state or to the defendant? Oh, way more to the defendant. Really? It just in general or when it just well, comes well, to the witnesses? Well, think about it. You're, if you're a defendant and your livelihood is at stake and you're, you're going to perhaps go to prison for a significant amount of time, excluding one of your witnesses is a really big deal. Right. Okay. okay. Now, if this, you exclude one of the state's witnesses like they did in this case... Way less dangerous for the for the likelihood of it getting reversed on appeal. Okay, but if you exclude a defense witness, which, which is what happened in my case, the the defendant's witness was excluded. Um, after that case in in Indiana, because it was kind of a, a case of a first impression, so it's out there now, and other judges can read it. And judges are going to be real, real reluctant to 
exclude a defense witness because they don't want to redo trials. But so it's easy to easier to exclude things on the state side, uh, especially when they had. In this case, I think they showed that they had the evidence for quite some time. Right, right. And, and they didn't um, they didn't bring it to the attention or disclose it to the defense. Wonder why they would do that though, knowing that that probably wouldn't go. Usually, through. it's one of two things: just plain oversight. Uh, you know, there's so much evidence in these cases that they think they've discovered something and they just didn't, or. They think it's been discovered in a sort of roundabout way or a backward way, and the defense should put it together on their own. Um, but the courts pretty much want to see the prosecution say, hey, here it is, spell it out on a piece of paper, file it with the court. Okay. And these murder cases, though, you might have hundreds and hundreds of exhibits, and you just think you've done something. You haven't. Right, yeah. I don't think it's ever – rarely. I won't say it's never been done intentionally because it has. But that's pretty rare. For it to be like in an underhanded way. Yeah, and then you got to remember um, – and this is true even in Florida because I looked at jobs in Florida when I was a prosecutor – they don't pay for shit, right? This prosecutor's probably making maybe $100,000 a year. Isn't that maybe. typical for any state job, though? Yeah, well, state, yes. Federal prosecutors make quite a bit more. I think this is this is a state case, though. Yeah, it is. It's yeah, a state case. Yeah, it's not so federal. These people are not making hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, you can't. It's hard. Do good prosecutors work way more hours than they're paid for? Yes. Do sometimes they don't work as many hours as they should because of how they're paid? Yes. Right. And so sometimes you see mistakes. So Jamel Demons, he was in a relationship with his daughter named Mariah Hamilton, who is 22 now, and that they had started dating in 2016 and lasted about three years. Her mom, Felicia Holmes, who is a registered nurse, testified that, quote-unquote, I heard that there might have been a shooting. Attorneys argued about the reliability of Holmes' testimony after she said she didn't remember what had happened uh, or her statements during a follow-up deposition on the record. She ended up saying, I feel threatened. And when she first took the stand, later adding that she was referring to Assistant State Attorney Christine Bradley. She had been trying to say that the state has ruined her life and that Holmes said during her testimony that she had been intimidated with threats of arrest and that the prosecution had lied about a subpoena, which forced her to hire an attorney. The Broward Circuit Judge John Murphy, who is, of course, presiding over the case, declared Holmes was a hostile witness to the state, yet allowed her testimony to continue. So... How can the judge just say she's hostile to the state if she's saying what she feels happened? Well, she was saying that she felt threatened with this. From, I, I watched this part of the uh, on, on of the of the trial. She was what I would consider hostile. She was uh, saying she's feeling threatened. She was and threat. I mean, what they were doing is trying to serve her with a subpoena. So um, they, uh, you know, and and. You know, when you do that, you'll tell a witness, hey, the subpoena, you know, the words people use all the time, subpoena is not an invitation. Subpoena is a court order. If you know, if you ignore a court order, you're subjected to the potential of being found in contempt, and penalties for contempt can include jail. So that's the kind of language they'll use, and so she's taking that to say she's being threatened. Matter of fact, if I remember right, they, they she got picked up on an unrelated warrant or was in custody, and that's when they actually finally got her served. Was They took it to the jail and handed it to her. Um, but she turned that, twisted that around to say she was being intimidated by the prosecutor. I thought the prosecutor handled that pretty well. When the judge declares a witness like that hostile, they will give the prosecutor more leeway to ask leading questions as opposed to um, non-leading questions. Why is that? Because they get to treat it more like a witness they're cross-examining. So when you cross-examine a witness, you're allowed to ask leading questions. So I can say, um, Devin, is it your birthday today, right? Right. And you could say, oh, fuck yourself, I, I, my birthday was a week ago. Or I can say, Devin, isn't it true you were born on August 3rd, 1999? Right. See the difference? And when you can ask the questions in that way, it makes it harder for them to weasel out of them. And so when somebody's being ho- is declared hostile by the court, the court will let you start treating the witness how we did it the second way. Okay. So after the judge dismissed Holmes, who is the one that was saying, you know, that she felt like the state was hostile, the defense attorney had moved for a mistrial and that he had claimed that there had been a prejudicial fiasco in court. The defense accused the prosecution of calling Holmes to read out-of-court statements despite the court's ruling that it could not be done to accuse them of witness tampering. Quote-unquote, this jury sat there and watched this fiasco unfold with at least 10, maybe 15 sidebars after every two questions. He said that the highly prejudicial testimony had tainted the jury. Yeah, so what they were arguing in this situation was that so when you have a hostile witness, a prosecutor, it's extremely, extremely difficult, especially when they have important evidence like this lady did. Because she she uh, said that Melly was FaceTiming her daughter 
and she heard her yeah, say things she had, about like, overheard it. Yeah, it kind of sounded like a shooting might have happened. That's really important evidence, right? Well, she's she's testifying now. Yeah, I don't really remember. It, and it was five years ago. Yeah, great. But she's, yeah, I remember talking to the police, but I have no idea what I told them. That kind of stuff. That's what she's, that's the kind of thing she's saying on the stand. Is that kind of like unfair to say, though? I mean, like five, six years ago. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't forget everything that happened that night. I mean, that's going to be something. So she was playing it up. I mean, how many times? not be involved. Uh, yeah, but living in that area, how many times do you hear of a shooting? I feel like that's probably pretty consistent. Uh, no, for sure. But then when you've given a statement and in that statement you've said, I heard him talk about this. Yeah, you're going to remember fair. that. And then, you know, they have her statement. She can reread it. And she's saying she just doesn't remember any of it. So that's frustrating for a prosecutor. They'll start getting a little bit out of shape with the witness. That's when they get started hostile. What the defense is saying is they were trying to get her prior statements of what she said originally in through her yeah. when she had no memory of it. And you can't do that. And so there, she keeps so asking So you can't, these, like, read what you prior said to the police? No, no. You can have the witness reread it to refresh their memory. But if they keep saying they don't know, they're kind of just stuck. And it can get real uncomfortable, and that's when... But if, if they don't remember, and then they read it, and they do remember, wouldn't, as a defense, you would want them to not remember? Oh, sure. You want her to do exactly what this lady did. Right, right. It's just keep saying, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I remember giving a statement. I don't remember anything I said. That kind of stuff. So it makes for this really uncomfortable situation. When the judge then gives you the ability to treat them as hostile, and you can sort of start adding leading questions in, well, now you're starting to use those leading questions to try to get in the words you're wanting to get in that you're not allowed to. So she keeps doing this, and there's this objecting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and the prosecutor's saying, you've gotten so much information in through your questioning that's been, or the defense is saying, you've gotten so much information in through your questioning that's been objected to and sustained. Now the jury's heard a bunch of stuff they shouldn't. Yeah. And that's why he asked for the, the uh, mistrial. So you said that there had been at least 10, maybe 15 sidebars. What is, is, that, is that just, what's the sidebar? Sidebars where uh, they're clunky, they interrupt trials, they break your they break your um, your momentum. mojo, momentum, all that. Basically, objection, Your Honor, can we have a sidebar? So you're wanting to object to something, but you don't want the jury to hear what your objection is because it could influence them. So the judge is saying yes to those. All the parties approach to the bench, the microphones are muted, and then the only people that are supposedly able, able to hear what's being said are the judge the prosecutor, and the defense attorney. Usually they're not too far from the jury, though, right? It's just like no, a couple feet. I'm terrible with sidebars because I'm so freaking loud. Right. Many times I've been told, counsel, keep your voice down. You know. Now, federal courts have gotten super techie, and the uh, judge and the um, defense and the, uh, the prosecutors are wearing an earpiece and a microphone, and when they do a sidebar, they cover their mouth uh, real real close like this to muffle it. They push a button on their side and then only the people, they're all sitting there on tables. The only people that can hear what's being said are the people that have the, the little earpieces in. So theirs is like very covert and much more effective way to do a sidebar, I think. Than, and, and, you know, state courts are always behind uh, federal courts in terms of technology because they just don't have the budget. But well, yeah. they'll, they'll catch up eventually. So in a federal court, they really aren't hearing it. State court... Do jurors sometimes overhear things going on in a sidebar? 100%. What if they... So this is what I was always curious is like, I've heard that sometimes the jurors are like watched by like a court personnel while they deliberate. And I also heard that sometimes they're just stuck in a room and like left alone. Who like, who, who dictate, like who knows and who can like say something if they know that they are like using evidence that they shouldn't be to make their decision? So, uh, at least in Indiana, nobody sits in the jury room with the jury. There's a bailiff that's in charge of the jury. They sit in a room outside the jury deliberation room, and then the jury will, usually the jury foreperson. So there's, like, no oversight? No. They'll come to the, they'll come to the, the bailiff and, or the, um, yeah, the, the bailiff that's over the jury, and they'll be like, hey, we have this issue or this issue or this issue. But inside the room where they're deliberating, no. And if uh, I've referenced some other podcasts that very old movie from like the 1950s. It's black and white. Twelve Angry Men. Uh, if anybody wants to see what a jury deliberation is likely like, watch Twelve Angry Men. They're literally locked in a room and they argue with each other. You try to talk about the evidence. You are taking votes to see where everybody is on on the evidence, and then they each argue their sides and try to persuade people to see the things the way they are. But sometimes it gets pretty angry. It's hostile. Absolutely. 
So, yeah, because of that big fiasco, they had pushed for a mistrial, and I'm pretty sure there had been other times that the defense also pushed for a mistrial. And which it, is not uncommon. Yeah, which isn't uncommon, and that ended up all being denied. So detectives believe that Demons was behind Henry in the passenger seat, and Thomas was to the right of Demons and behind Williams, who was in the front passenger seat. The jury also learned Thomas and Williams had suffered gunshot wounds to the head and upper body, and that, of course, they found, the detectives reported that they hadn't found any evidence on Miramar Parkway, which is where they originally said the drive-by shooting happened but that they found it on Pembroke, Pembroke Road and then inside the Jeep where there was a 40 caliber spent shell case and that they believe suggested the shooter was inside the Jeep. And like I said, they didn't actually end up uh, finding evidence on where they said it happened. They just they ended up finding the location because uh, they had tracked the cell phone-like uh, location. Detectives couldn't find the gun, so firearm expert Bello, who said he examined the shell cases and projectiles and evidence, didn't know its make and model. And he said, as far as the projectiles, two of them came from one firearm. He concluded during questioning by the defense that there could have been more than one weapon involved in the murder. However, he also stated that he could not definitively place a gun at the scene of the crime due to a gun not being recovered whatsoever, giving massive credence to the idea that YNW Melly may win. Uh, when I was watching the trial, you know, there was kind of like a live blog going on at the same time. And when the firearm expert said that he could not definitively place a gun at the scene because he, they did not recover a gun, People were going crazy over that, saying that, like, oh, this is what make will make Millie win, blah, blah, this. But this is also people with, like, zero legal idea of anything. Well, and, okay, you can take that to its extreme always, right? So let's say it's a stabbing. Somebody stabbed the heart, they die, and there's blood all over the place uh, where it happened. But the guy that did it runs away and throws the, throws the knife in the bottom of a river. You're never going to be able to show that the show that there was a knife at the scene, right? Conclusively, right? But there's a knife entry point in somebody's chest, right? There's, right. There's, there's bullet holes inside of people, right? There was a gun at the scene. Yeah. You can't throw a bullet. <laughs> yeah. The, you know what I mean? So uh, that's to me that was kind of like people jumping on something that really wasn't. Yeah. Did he concede it? it probably how this went was. Um, so you can't say there it was conclusively a gun at the scene, can you? I said, well, yeah, there's a bullet. People were shot with bullets, so yeah, I think I can. But you have no evidence that there was physically a gun at the scene. Right, so you can't like definitively and say. And he probably eventually said, yeah, you're right, I can't, just because the defense attorney kept They're grilling him, right. And eh, that stuff scores a little bit, but that, to me that's not a huge deal. So they ended up, uh, one thing that the defense had used as uh, an argument was that the phone that they ended up receiving all of these confirmation records from uh, is used by multiple people. And this kind of, as much as it may help uh, or may help Melly, it also really uh, hurt him too, because since other people had the phone while he was in jail, he had given someone else the passcode to the phone and they heard that phone call and they used that phone call to get into his phone. Oh, I didn't know that. And through that, they found messages saying were from Melly saying, quote unquote, I did that. Shh. And that he had wrote that in a private message about the murders. And according to Assistant State Attorney Bradley, who said that the case evidence also includes communication records from Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat. So them getting in his phone, like, royally screwed him. Like, they, they were in it, and they found all of this. And, of course, the defense is arguing that other people had the phone and that they were referring to other incidences. The prosecution claims that Demons was a member of the G-Shine blood set and that he was learning the— he was learning and earning the Streets Gang's Oath of Loyalty on October 24th, 2018, two days before the murders. They also say that Demons is shown stacking gang signs with his hands in photos and videos. And that's where people are doing like all those, you know, gang signs one after the other with their hand. And it kind of looks like an elaborate dance with their fingers. And since the gang's rival is the Crips, Bradley said Demons spelling on his personal messages, messages was indicative of his membership. Quote, unquote, anytime a word would normally be spelled with a C as in Charlie, they don't use that. They replace it with the letter B. So instead of saying, I am at the crib, they say, I am at the brib. Why, ladies and gentlemen? Because C is associated with Crips, B is for Bloods. So it sounds absurd, and it is absurd when you see people typing like that and reading it, but that is what they do. And it's interesting. It's, and it's kind of what I th- think is kind of interesting, too. They're, they're totally throwing this whole gang thing in there to, to make everything look bad, right? That's The killing and the motive they're saying for the killing is really not so much gang-related as it right. is about money between the, these these. Right. Four, I know? think it's more of like a, like they're trying to taint his character. 100%. A character assassinate him. 100%. So they are in the exact same cell phone plan, which is what the uh, 
prosecutors said about the victims were quote unquote reliable cell phone tracking data and that she said that had placed them at Miramar Parkway, Pines Boulevard, and a desolated area on Pembroke Road. The drive-by was staged shortly after 4 a.m. and at the edge of the Everglades when the victims were already dead. She also said that an autopsy report shows the victims had suffered post-mortem bullet wounds as well. So after they were dead, they were shot again. Yeah, which is would, would support this being a staged drive-by. Bradley said that sh- cell phone records show that Jamel Demons was with the two victims up to 15 minutes before Cortland Henry, the driver of the Jeep who was the only other survivor, and you know was doing this with Melly, arrived at the Memorial Marimara Hospital with the two bodies. The, their entire case is hinged upon the technology of a phone they claim to have been in Mr. Demons' possession, the defense said. What they fail, fail to tell you is that they have come across evidence that Mr. Demons got out of the car before this incident. Howard also told the jury that the prosecution ignores that because it's not consistent with, quote-unquote, their theory. He also said the prosecution isn't able to prove that the cell phone records are connected to demons. That phone comes back to to the name of somebody other than Jamel Demons. Their own witness will tell you that, yes, that phone and Mr. Williams' phone and a number of other phones were all in the same account, and all the people in the house used to use them interchangeably. So, like I said, that's a big uh, argument that the defense is using. The judge saying allowed the, saying the damning text messages could have been somebody yeah, else. Yeah, could have been somebody else. The judge allowed a Brad Sheriff's Office detective to hide his identity while testifying in court, and that was Detective Polo, which we were talking about. The judge authorized him to wear a black ski mask after he reported working undercover and having received death death threats, but they were unrelated to the case. Defense attorneys David Howard and Jason Williams, who are representing demons, objected to the witness's ski mask. The state could have chosen any other expert in gangs, and they elected to choose one who has threats against his life that don't concern this case and who is undercover. They have precipitated this problem, which, of course, makes a lot of sense. You think they only have one gang detective? Right. However, jurors also criticized the judge's decision in a note to the court, saying, Why does he get to see us, but we don't get to see him? Later, as Polo continued his testimony, a juror requested a break and wrote, I need a moment. I can't listen properly. When I was a child, I'd seen someone get robbed, and I'm having an anxiety attack. Murphy allowed the jurors to take a break, and when the jurors returned, she told Murphy she felt better, but she added, I don't believe that was appropriate. So, can I just say that is, like, the pussiest thing I've, I've ever never, heard? I've never heard of... I've never that seen anything like that. That is the wimpiest thing I've ever I mean, heard. Occasionally, you'll see... I uh, thought someone get robbed as a kid. Did he get killed? Did he get hurt? No? Okay, shut up. Sometimes you'll see a witness that's, like, a civilian that they'll use, like, a screen to provide protection to that's received death threats in a case in the case they're testifying in uh but yeah having a detective or a ski mask that's just i don't know never never seen anything like that before so the prosecutor christine bradley showed the jury combative text messages she said demons had sent to williams also known as sack chaser quote unquote before i let something happen to me or play with my family everybody will die and that is what williams wrote to melly he also said you just DF for the money. I can expletive all you lives up forever. And then he says, it's in my hand. So he's basically threatening Melly's family and saying everybody will die and that their lives are in his hands. So trying to show motive. Right. Bradley also displayed Instagram messages from Melly's official account in court on Tuesday. In many of the exchanges, the rapper sent the number that the state has been trying to prove belonged to him. So he had sent number, the, the phone number that the state is trying to prove belonged to him. He's Tied sending to, to other messages. people saying, hey, text me at this number. Right, right. Sony's using it. Defense attorney Stuart Adelstein, which it seems like this guy has like five or six fucking defense attorneys. He did. Objected to Moretti's cell phone record-related testimony, again pointing out that the state previously brought FBI agent Brandon Collins to the witness stand because Moretti wasn't an expert in the subject. Quote-unquote, they have not authenticated one of these messages, Adelstein said. They know it. He's not qualified to do that. The state is leading you astray on this because they have not authenticated one message. Defense is hitting these messages a lot because they're pretty damning. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, honestly, without to, these texts, he probably could have gotten. They're trying everything they can to keep them out. When that's not working, they're trying everything they can to put it on somebody else. Yeah, I will say if he does end up getting convicted guilty, I would say a big portion of that is because of the text. The text messages. Yes, which I mean, I feel like that's really typical. It's not uncommon that people use own words are. <laughs> what ends up sinking the ship. Right. So Judge John Murphy, however, allowed Moretti to continue testifying on the topic while analyzing messages in the phone dump. The detective read out a few. Quote, unquote, Hey, bro, I love you. I love you to death. You brother for life. And that was Melly to Williams. So even though Williams is being hostile to Melly, Melly is being nice back to them. He said, I'll never say I'll kill you or harm you. If you need anything, just hit my line. I'm good. It just some be telling me y'all up to something. And then Williams responded, you don't owe me nothing. We is the same person. 
So during opening arguments, defense attorney David Howard accused Murdy of not properly vetting or investigating other leads. Howard said that three days after the killings, a man and his sister had mentioned intimate details about the murders in a recorded jail call. Police, Howard said, disregarded the lead after the man's sister said she heard the details on the street. Two men also confessed to the murders on social media, Howard alleged, but detectives dismissed them after talking to them months later. Moretti testified that the two men behind the social media accounts didn't have any location data tying them to Miramar or to the murders. The jailed man was being held at the Indian River County Jail at the time of the murders, Moretti said, confirming that he spoke with the man's sister. Many, many analysts, as we have said, said the prosecutor ended with a whimper and not on a strong note, and that the defense had come off with a lot more emotion, which is like how Brad said, you know, maybe they were just tired. This has been something that's like months long. A lot of yeah, when you get a lot of cameras on them. Though, man, you gotta you gotta drink a Red Bull, do something right. to re-energize yourself. Do a bump. That's your time. Closing argument is your right. time. That's when you got to land the ship. So, of course, the defense attacked the investigation in the sense that they just hadn't done enough and that the investigators only pointed at Melly due to him being a rapper and that it was clear he was trying to avoid and ignore the gangs, which I will say, based on the text, it did seem like he was trying to ignore them and avoid them. There was a lot more that, we, you know, we just can't put in here for time, but Melly was, like, honestly being threatened a lot, and he was ignoring the piss out of them. Like, yeah. he was not responding for, like, right. weeks and months at a time, which was pissing the gang off more. Right. You know what I mean? Because right. they want their money and they want to have him under their thumb. The defense still pushes that YW Melly was a victim of a drive-by and that the text in their phone isn't indicative of Melly being there as multiple people had Melly's phone and it was known that the phone was being used amongst multiple people, which breeds enough reasonable doubt in the eyes of the defense, which, of course, the defense is going to think that. They threw in if I, the, the possibility it was the driver, too. Right, which kind of just throwing him under the bus. Yeah. Which I will say, since they're both co-defendants, it's uh, I'm really surprised that Bortland hasn't like snitched on YW Melly. Oh, they've tried, I'm sure. You think so? Oh, they've definitely tried. You think he's tried to snitch? No, no, no. The state's tried to get him to snitch. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. That's he's what I'm just, saying, though. It's just surprising he hasn't. He's tied his life to this thing. Yeah. So the prosecutor's theory is that Melly left Henry Borton alive because he was more of an asset and was instrumental in helping Millie kill the other victims. However, the jury ended up ending in a mistrial with 11 jurors wanting to convict on both murder trials with a single holdout. The holdout was said to be very combative and confrontational, according to other jurors, and that she was not willing to deliberate in good faith. Quote, unquote, from day one, she had issues with the four persons selected, at one point crossing her arms and saying that she was done. When another juror asked to not shut down and set her feelings aside, she exploded. She was explosive, manipulative. She was rude. She yelled insults at anyone who had a different opinion. This is all coming from another juror yeah. who spoke anonymously afterwards. Yeah, a juror had, like, spoken to multiple news articles, basically just absolutely trashing this woman. She was there to cause chaos, the former juror said. During voir dire, when, prosecutors, when prospective jurors are questioned to decide whether they can be fair and impartial, the woman said that she had previous experience with the legal system because of past family issues. She insisted, though, that this would not affect her ability to serve as a juror. On the last day of deliberation, the former juror said that while it appeared they were 11 to 1 to convict demons of manslaughter with a deadly weapon, the woman pulled two other jurors aside and spoke to them for a few minutes, convincing them to come to her side. Then she came over and announced to the group that they had changed their minds, but when another juror asked why she was speaking for them, she exploded. The former juror continued, adding that the woman then hurled insults, including gay slurs, at the man who questioned her. The judge had to send the jury back twice before finally relenting on the third time and conceding that the jury was deadlocked after three days of deliberations. And then now the court will reconvene for this trial in October to try it again. Now, this is what I'm curious. This is something that you've told me about in regards to uh, your cases that you've had when you were a prosecutor. They're trying to get him for murder, and they're trying to hit him with the death penalty, but it says that the jurors were willing to convict him on manslaughter with a deadly weapon. Why are they able to, uh, like, discuss other charges? Yeah, so in, in this I was in Indiana, I presume also in Florida. If there's something called lesser included charges, so if what the state proved uh, meets the elements of another charge uh, that's a lesser charge of what the one the state is trying to convict him of, the jury can ask to convict him of those lesser included charges as long as they, the facts that were presented at trial and the elements are met and those elements are uh, included in the charge they were ultimately charged with, then they can do that. So voluntary manslaughter, uh, they're saying uh, is, that's an act of passion. So you're killing an act of passion. The classic voluntary manslaughter is uh, um, husband walks on in on uh, his wife cheating uh, cheating on him with some other guy, grabs his gun and shoots the guy that she's cheating on with. That's a classic voluntary manslaughter. When that happens, when a, it's a lesser culpability, they it's a lesser penalty. Now, voluntary manslaughter, at least in Indiana, 
still carries a sentence up to 50 years and, and, and many times gets in the 30, 40 year range, uh, not uncommon. Uh, can go down as little as 20. So it's still a very serious charge. And in this case, the, the prosecutor would have considered that a win. So I thought you had told me that you had a trial once where um, you were trying to go for, like, you know, a murder or something like that, and the jury ended up coming back to you and saying that, like, if you had tried for a different charge, they would have done it, but they just couldn't agree on murder. Well, the jury isn't told they can do that, so they have to oh. sort of, kind of figure out on their own and ask for it. Now, uh, now, you can argue for a lesser included in, in closings, and then the jury knows they can do it. But if a jury isn't – if neither side is arguing for a lesser, they have to kind of figure that out on their own, which is pretty tricky for – you know, you don't – you read all these course instructions, you don't realize you have that power. How it will work out most often when a either side either side has argued for it, so then they know they have that power – or occasionally the jury will come back and say, we don't think we can agree on this, but we do think we can agree on this charge. Are we allowed to do that? And when they ask that question, are they allowed to do that? Then the judge can instruct them, if it is a lesser included charge, this is a lesser included charge, you can uh, return a, a guilty verdict. Now, when they say things like that, do the prosecution and the defense know that they just said that? When they send a question to the judge, usually the judge will let you know what the question is. Okay, so like if they ask a question like that, the defense kind of already knows what's about to come. Yeah, so when you get into cases like this, though, when there's a deadlock in a jury, the judge has lots of, lots of different options. Sometimes they'll let you reopen closing argument. So the jury's jury thinks they could, you know, hearing from the prisoners again might help them. They can let the, they can let the jury come back in and the, give each side another 15 minutes to argue. There's all types of things that can happen. In this case, they kept saying they were deadlocked. The judge sent them um, back twice. If the judge keeps sending them back when they're saying they're deadlocked, Eventually, that might be considered undue coercion. Like you're basically telling the juror you need to change your mind because you keep sending you back when you're saying you're How deadlocked. many times is like a, an acceptable amount to send them back, though? Two, I'd say, is pretty common. A third, occasionally, uh, might be, uh, you might see. But they deliberated for three days. They're saying they're still deadlocked. At that point, they're wearing out, they're tired. And, and, and you know, a judge doesn't want to be accused of manipulating the jury into a verdict. So having sent them back twice, they've been delivering for three days. That's that's a pretty common time thing. So what happens when when you get a hung jury? People for, people don't realize in, in criminal cases to convict somebody, you have to have a unanimous verdict, 12-0. To have them found not guilty, unanimous verdict, 12-0. People think it's like a majority, not, not in criminal cases, but you have to have a perfect verdict. All have to agree, 12-0 either way. Now we're hearing, and this is coming again from anonymous jurors. You don't know 100% true, but you're hearing it's 11 to 1 in favor of guilty. What does that mean now that he's reset for trial in October? That's not good for Melly, statistically. So just in general, uh, prosecutors win their cases at trial somewhere around 70 to 85% of the time. Uh, it depends on, on uh, what part of the country you're in what, what, and then what part of the state you're in within that country. So there's definitely, within that state, um, there's definitely better places to have a jury for a defendant in Indiana than there is, uh, you know, one city or state, part of the state is better than others. Happens, the conviction rate's lower in different parts of the state, but all of them are 70% or higher. So, you know, your odds aren't great going into it. After a hung jury, that increases by 10 to 15%. The state's conviction rate goes up drastically. And why is that? Well, now they've had a dress rehearsal. They've had witnesses under oath. They have now told another story that they can then use in the next trial if they said something inconsistent to impeach them. And because the state usually has fairly educated witnesses, at least the people that work in the crime lab, things like that, that have been attacked, they now know what the defense's attack is going to be on them, and they're going to have better consistent but better prepared answers for that in the next trial. So it's very common in a retrial in a murder case to end in a conviction. And when the jurors have sent a message of 11 to 1 and there's really this rogue juror that's kind of just out there lingering, um, that's a big red flag to Melly's team. Uh, you know, if the prosecutor throws a plea out there for voluntary manslaughter with some sort of agreed sentence that might be lesser, yeah, that's something they're going to think about because they, you know, they had a, a, a good trial from their, from their perspective, I think, um, and they still got a, almost, almost a guilty. So... Uh, is a hung jury better than a guilty when you're a defendant? Yes. Is an 11-1 better? Yes. Is it a red flag and, and a caution that, hey, this retrial may not go well for you? 
Yes. So I thought, I thought, you know, when trials are going on, the jurors have to kind of be like sequestered and like kept away from public and kept away from the news, especially in a highly publicized case like this. So that way they can't have outside information influencing their decisions. But when a case goes multiple months long, I mean, you can't stick these guys in a fucking hotel room, right? For no, that that's a TV thing. Most jurors are not uh, are not uh, secluded. Most of them get to go home at night. They're cautioned every single day. At the end of the day, you're not to read anything in the media about this case. You're not to discuss the facts of the case with you know anyone. You know damn well they are. Oh, they're human. There's no doubt they're human. They are allowed to talk about the case as it's going on amongst themselves when they're all together. But they're not supposed to go talk to family. They're not supposed to do any independent research on Google or read media. Is that happening? 100%. There's, I mean, they're human. There's no way they're not going home and telling their spouse about what they just saw in court. Um, are, are there some that probably do that are, you know, really strict rule followers going to not do any of the things they're supposed to do hundred uh, percent. But are there people that are going back and Googling something they saw or heard in trial? Yeah, that's probably happening too. They're not I know to. I would, I would for sure. So if you think your guy's guilty or not guilty and you think I'd be a bad person on the jury, you better fucking kick me off because I'm so <laughs> Googling that shit as soon as I like leave the courthouse. Yeah. That, that'll be one of the questions you asked before dear. And if you give that answer, you're going to be out. Um, so, uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, that's happening. Will they, in a very high-profile case where there's constant media berating them, sometime um, sequester the jury? Yes, but that is a huge expense. You're paying for hotels. You're paying for food every single night, three mi- night meals Plus, a day. Plus, you know, they're losing money from their jobs. So you got to pay yes. for that, too. Well, they're doing that anyways. I mean, they're, they're going to be in court every day. Um, but it is a huge expense to the state to pay for all those meals and the, and the staying overnight, the security that has to come with it. So you'll see it happen occasionally, but it's, it is very, 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 very rare. The Delphi case that we've talked about, that'll be one where it'll be interesting to see if they, if they try to do that for sure. So in regards to Melly, the case is reset for trial. What does that mean? It's like this first trial never happened, except that the statements that these witnesses gave are going to be sworn testimony. And if they say something inconsistent, it can be used against them. So uh, this will be coming back up for trial in October. Very likely it's going to go in October because they've already done it. It's hard to say they're not prepared. Uh, judges hate hung juries. It wasted a ton of court time, and they got no result. So very likely this will go to trial again in October, and we'll definitely be keeping an eye on it for you. And uh, we'll bring another episode to you on uh uh, the Melly situation once the verdict comes back. And so look for that coming up uh, sometime probably in the month of October, maybe November, depending on how long, how long the trial goes. Yeah, and speaking of Delphi, we're going to come back to you on our next episode with updates on that because there's been some pretty crazy updates. And surprisingly, I haven't seen much in the released. news. A yeah, lot of documents. I don't know why. The, it's like the news has kind of just like fallen off. Yeah, on the it. day they released them, they they talked about it quite a bit, but it's just, just part of a day. So we'll, we'll uh, dive into that uh, in an upcoming episode and get into the, into the nitty-gritty details. Yeah, so we'll see you guys next time. We really appreciate you guys listening to our podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been another episode of Black and Wall Talks. See ya.